So, um, taking time to uh, enter a period of retreat like we're doing together is uh, of such great value. <clears throat> Even though we all have our moments of wobble and doubt about it, I, I think that uh, <clears throat> part of the value is that it just helps to slow things down. Uh, slow the momentum of our life down, even if the mind is still quite busy, which it will be sometimes. There's still this sense of being able to to um, <clears throat> to feel into a slower rhythm and get a feeling for the background, as was um, encouraged in Kitisara's teaching this morning. To notice, as the encouragement was, to notice... Uh, silence as to sound or space as to form and awareness as to experience to notice there's a context within which we experience sounds, forms and uh, thoughts and then to, to point or gather the attention back into what is that which is noticing what is that which is receptive What is that which is listening? What is the background? Ever-present, immovable suchness. So today, uh, some time to contemplate this. Some methods um, that were offered this morning to to, uh, enter this, in some ways, fundamentally immediate and simple realization, but subtle. Subtle because the mind has such momentum to it and is always seeking for something else, something a bit special, something a bit different, something to grasp. There's a a wonderful um, conversation that appears in the suttas where Saka, the king of the Tawatinsa heaven, is a heavenly realm, apparently quite near to our human realm. So Saka sort of contemplating the human realm and is perplexed by what goes on here as anyone would be and he goes to the Buddha and he asks why do people fight? it's a fair enough question isn't it? what takes us into conflict? what takes us into wars? what takes us into these endless uh, fights that have decimated so much throughout the history of humankind? And the Buddha says, because of selfishness. And Saka's not quite content with that answer, so he goes on further and says, why are humans selfish? And the Buddha says, because of greed. And then Saka thinks about that for a few moments and still not quite content, so asks again, but why are they greedy? And the Buddha responds, because of desire. And Saka thinks about that for a few moments and said, but why do they have desire? And the Buddha says, because of papancha. Because of papancha. This word papancha, which literally means something like to spread out, is usually translated as conceptual proliferation. It's the mind when it's just is in this mode of creating all the time, creating the sense of self, creating realities thinking about, endlessly thinking about, 
who we are and what we're doing and where we're going and what is ours and what isn't ours and what we want and what we don't want. So behind all of this affect in the world, all that's happening in the world is this mind. So today we've had some chance to really explore that. What is this mind? What is this thinking, this perfection? (coughs) And then they quote the the Buddha, uh, the uh, Kirisaro uh, gave from the Buddha was that Buddha's delight in Nipapancha. This is the resting place of the the Buddhas or the awakened present heart. It doesn't delight in Papancha, it delights in Nipapancha. It delights in not creating endless realms of thought. So what is that like and who are we when we're not thinking about ourselves so much? How can you know how how do we how do we define ourselves if we don't do so through thought? So also today there was some help to really explore this inquiry. <clears throat> like the question using thought, like the question who? Who's trying so hard? Who's not getting there? Who's worried about what's going to happen? This is a very ancient method to turn the mind round with this question, who? Who's upset? Who has just got some insight? Who's a hopeless case? <laughs> and so in that moment, it just, it just opens for a moment, reveals, and we get a glimpse of the structures of the self that are woven in with our thinking and feeling moments of consciousness, moments of wakefulness, moments of noticing. Or another question that was suggested this morning is to ask what remains, what is always present? What remains? Or the analogy from the Shirangama Sutra of the host and the guest. Today, I'm sure throughout the day, you've had many different kinds of guests that come to visit. Some perhaps very uplifting and inspiring, or I really want to practice and devote my life. Maybe some subtle and lovely insights, maybe some seeing of some of our patterns in particular ways. Or maybe some not so pleasant guests, memories that really are upsetting to us, or quandaries that we can we can't quite resolve, or fears and doubts and anxieties that come to visit. But what remains? Who is the host? Who is receiving the guests? And this fundamental confusion of the mind, thinking that we are the guests and not the host, not even acknowledging that there is a host, there is that which is receptive, which is present. Or as said in the Dhammapada, the Buddha said, mistaking the real for the unreal and seeing the real as unreal and seeing the unreal as real. 
what is ephemeral, changeable, we think, we hold that as, as real. It has some reality, but we hold it as definitively real. And then what we, we assume is unreal, this host, that which is listening now, that which is present now, we dismiss as no reality. So pointing to this ever-present suchness of awareness, of being, this practice is leading us into this, leads us into this, or as, is, as we chanted in the morning, the Dharma, the Dharma nature, is ever inviting, inviting us to recognize. It's a humble, in a certain way, it's a humble practice. Because the mind is, a, is, is geared towards wanting to attain something, wanting to hold, wanting to grasp, wanting to own, wanting to go home with something. <laughs> and and in, in a certain way, this practice is the opposite of that. It's the practice of when Ajahn Chah, his Western disciples, would wash up on his doorstep and he would say, <clears throat> have you come here to die? He'd say, no, I've come here to get enlightened. <laughs> He'd say, well, have you come here to die? Because <laughs> that's really what it's about, <laughs> in a certain way, this practice. Have you come here to really let go of all of our assumptions and all, all of what we think we need to get? all of what we think we need to be that we haven't got yet or attain <clears throat> so it's said that in this what's so subtle about this realization is that it's, uh, it's it is beyond papancha it is beyond words dharma cannot be captured words fall silent before it as is said. There's another um, incident in the suttas where a great, great practitioner called Anuruddha goes to another great practitioner called Sariputta. Sariputta is known as foremost in wisdom and Anuruddha is known as foremost in psychic powers. These are two great disciples of the Buddha and Anuruddha goes to Sariputta he says, you know, Sariputta, I'm foremost in the whole Sangha in seeing the 10,000 world systems. I can see into all these subtle realms. I'm sort of embroidering what he said now, but he basically had the capacity to see into the formless realms to have these psychic powers. He said, my meditation is firmly established and my mindfulness is, is as steady as a rock. So he'd practiced really hard and he'd, he'd really got down the whole practice of mindfulness, unwavering. I have unremitting energy and my body is relaxed and calm. So he'd attained a lot, he'd got a lot, but then he said, but I still suffer. I still experience unsatisfactoriness. And Sariputta said, well, you know, there's still some sense of conceit. There's still some sense of the me doing it. There's still some sense of restlessness, something yet to get. There's still some sense of anxiety. Haven't quite got it yet. These are subtles, the subtle hindrances of the mind. 
of the attachment to the mind, the grasping mind, still something to get, still restless, still something that we haven't quite realized. And then Sariputta said to Anuruddha, turn your mind to the deathless, to Nibbana, Amakadana, the deathless element, the signless, that which is beyond grasp, grasping, beyond your grasp, beyond your attainments. Keep turning your mind to that which you can't hold. You can't see as an object. You can't define. It's quite a conundrum, isn't it? <laughs> you can always see the mind going, what? <laughs> and then when we come to this, to this uh, sutta that we chanted tonight, the, the Heart Sutra, then it really does undo the mind. I mean, I've been doing all this practicing to get beyond suffering, and then suddenly it says there's no suffering. nothing to attain it's quite a challenge and here in this sutra we have even Sariputra being in some ways one-upped by Avalokiteshvara he's, he's also, even though Sariputra has <coughs> just given Anuruddha a teaching we here have Avalokiteshvara giving Sariputra a teaching so even in some way, Sariputra in this, in this classical text is, in some definitions, is that is, he is, uh, some commentaries describe that Sariputra is associated with the one that helped to bring forth or help the Buddha <coughs> um, document the teaching of the Abhidharma, which is a very complex, systemized, systemized systemization of the Buddha's teaching all the lists, all the mind moments all the, the moments of consciousness ordinary consciousness, supramundane consciousness all the pathways of awakening it's very, very uh, Abhidhamma Ajahn chose to say it means too much Dharma <laughs> so Sariputra is, he has great wisdom but maybe there's still a subtle sense of of having that wisdom, of knowing something. It's not bad to know something, it's good. It's good to have lots of knowledge. But Avalokiteshvara is pointing to something deeper. The sutta opens with Avalokiteshvara coursing the depth of the prajnaparamita. There's this this sense of coursing or in some translations or practicing or flowing deeply within the Prajnaparamita. So Avalokiteshvara is pointing to this original mind, this beyond-knowledge mind, beyond-attainment mind, ever-present, really, really present, heart, (coughs) awareness. Whatever word we give to it, it's not that. It's just words, just pointers. So Avalokiteshvara... is known as the one who's dwelling in this prajna, prajna paramita. Prajna is a Sanskrit word for wisdom, but it's an interesting word to look into because it has within it the sense of wisdom, but also uh, something that's dynamic. 
that has intelligence. It's not wisdom that you capture in some insight that happened before that we read in the book. It's the wisdom that's very immediate. It's dynamic. It's here. And it's arising from the depth of this prajna mind. The prajna also sometimes translated nya as knowing or knowledge, gnosis, but also sometimes I've seen the translation of pra, the prefix, as beyond or before. That which is before knowledge, before we know anything. (laughs) This is the depth of this place of awakening before we know things, before we capture things, before we own things, before we become someone. What is that? So in a certain way, as we enter this koan, because it's like a koan, you know, when we read the Heart Sutra, it's not really meant to be intellectually grasped. You sit there and start thinking about it, we will get into a tangle. It's meant to act like a koan. It's something that impacts and we just allow it to begin to work on us. It's a practice. Some people, this is their whole practice, just working with the Heart Sutra, just just allowing it to work in the system because it keeps pointing, keeps just deconstructing, deconstructing everything that we hold on to. It keeps pointing back to this unknowable, ever-present suchness, which ultimately is a, is a mystery. Ultimately, it's saying that who we are, what we are, what is, is a mystery. It's a profound mystery. And that's very disconcerting to some part of the mind that wants to grasp and name and own and get a map. And, you know, for those of us that love Buddhism, we love the maps. (laughs) And there's lots of them. (laughs) You know, great maps of consciousness and of awakening and stages of enlightenment and attainments and maps of Theravada and maps of Mahayana and maps of Pure Land and Chan and suttas. And yet this is pointing to beyond that, this Parajnaparamita, beyond the maps, to this direct, intuitive, wise knowing of the heart that is a, a knowing that keeps stripping away our knowledge, keeps entering the mystery, takes the risk, allowing the uncertainty to be there because it is an uncertain place in a certain way but it's also very real very certain. In this, um, this practice in the Heart Sutra where it starts to dissolve the distinctions that we have, form and emptiness, at first we practice. First we feel very caught up in the forms, in our thoughts and our reactions. And then we gradually get a sense for that as we've been doing today, some sense of space, some sense of background, but there's a subtle way that we can still split the world. There's this, the formless, and then there's the world. <laughs> and that happens in so many 
over the years, you know, and there's so many questions, so many inquiries, how can I practice in the world? You know, because there's this special place that's outside of the world that we, that we are attempting to hold somehow. And then that feels that, you know, gets dispersed when we go into the world. And so in, as practitioners, there can be this split that starts to appear. Form is different than emptiness. Yeah, the world and the spiritual are different. The mundane and the everyday and the transcendent are different. The profane and the sacred, the world and the otherworldly. So there's these, these ways that we can discern difference. And, and that's true on one level, but then this sutra comes in and says, actually, it starts to dissolve the places where we hold distinctions, where we hold difference, where we split the world, good and bad, right and wrong. And keeps going back to this primary wakened state that's just present. Distinguishing that it's permanent and or it's impermanent, it's suffering or it's non-suffering, it's self or it's non-self. And then in the prajna it's saying, well, no, it's neither neither suffering nor non-suffering, neither impermanent nor permanent, neither self nor non-self. It won't give a position. So you get into this, is there a self or isn't there a self? <laughs> There's no self. So we'll practice not having a self for a while. <laughs> and then we go into therapy and say, no, we've really got a self. We go, go reclaim that self. Got marginalized in our Buddhist practice. Yeah. We dismiss the world because it's all impermanent. It doesn't really matter. And they say, no, no, it's, it's, it has meaning. The world has meaning. We must find meaning. But whatever position we take... No eyes, no ears, no tongue, no mind, no body, no suffering, no path. Keeps every position just keeps dissolving, keeps dissolving, keeps dissolving, keeps pointing back to the nameless, the formless, the mystery. In some ways, this this. Um, Ajahn Chah talked about this this in a very interesting way this way of dissolving taking us beyond the distinctions we make in the mind this is is samsara and this is nibbana and they're very very different and and in one of his teachings says no actually they meet wherever there's hot there's cold he said we extinguish fire at the place at which it appears wherever it's hot that's where we can make it cool and so it is with awakening. Nibbana is found in samsara. Enlightenment and delusion exist in the same place, just as do hot and cold. It's hot where it was cold, and it's cold where it was hot. When heat arises, the coolness disappears, and when there is coolness, there is no more heat. In the same way, Nibbana and samsara are the same. Just depends which way we, we turn. We move out into the shapes 
of the papancha mind proliferating, then we find ourselves caught. We move back at the same point of knowing, the same point of this prajna, and turn, <coughs> turn the mind. There's the taste of peace right there. It's not some other place in some other time. So in this, this dissolving, dissolving of the distinctions, it keeps pointing us back, keeps pointing us back to this, the immediacy of this prajna mind, the knowing heart, present heart, just here, just awake. Not gaining, not losing, not attaining, not getting old, not young, not born, not dying. All of that's happening. Being born, dying, moving, starting, endings, hellos, goodbyes, heat, cold, samsara, nibbana, love, hate. It's all always, always happening, and yet within that there's just this presence, suchness, knowing, prajna. Not quite empty, not quite form. Not quite impermanent, not quite permanent. Not quite self, not quite non-self. Master Wa said, emptiness isn't empty. As Buddhists, we really like emptiness to be empty. (laughs) (laughs) Emptiness isn't empty because of wonderful existence. You can't empty out wonderful existence. Everything is existing. You can't empty it out. It's here. And then he went on to say, wonderful existence doesn't exist because of emptiness. Emptiness isn't empty because of wonderful existence. Wonderful existence doesn't really exist. Dreamlike. Bubble, lightning flash, contemplate them thus because it's empty. The coursing the depth of Prajna Paramita, as soon as we touch that place, we are Avrakiteshvara. We're in that same place. Avrakiteshvara isn't some Bodhisattva from pre-Buddhist India that became Buddhist that got then transmuted into had a sort of transgender thing happen became female in Kuan Yin you know you know that is the lineage of Avalokiteshvara Lokeshvara the Lord that looks down upon the world with a merciful gaze but actually ultimately Avalokiteshvara is that Prajna heart here and now each one of us listening this is Avalokiteshvara right here in our midst. This present heart, simple heart, mysterious heart, wakeful heart, doesn't have to be attained heart, always here heart, inviting us inwards heart. And when we listen, revealing its truths to us, the truths about ourselves, truths about the world, revelatory heart, diamond heart, our moving heart, responsive heart. This is the activity 
of prajna, dynamic heart. <clears throat> in Kuan Yin, in her enlightenment, she talks about what happened. This is, uh, appears in the, again in the Shurangama Sutra where the Buddha, the whole story of the Shurangama Sutra is laid out around an effort to try and, in this in Mahayana Sutra, effort to try and awaken Ananda who'd gone astray. In the Mahayana Sutras, they often have a little dig at the Theravada. <laughs> Great saints. Oh, Ananda's gone a little bit astray, and the Buddha's, that's a whole story, won't go there tonight. It's a time. The Buddha decides he wants to try and help gather Ananda in and awaken him up a bit more, so he goes out and sends Manjusri to go get Ananda. Um, and then when the, bring him and young woman that he's nearly gone astray with, they, they <laughs> gets them to come back for you know to receive some teachings. And so then the Buddha gathers all these great twenty-five bodhisattvas together and asks each of them to give the teachings and then and uh, and to describe their enlightenment method. How did each one of them awaken? And then Manjusri has the task of deciding whose is the best method for Ananda. So they go through each of these different methods of awakening. And then it comes to Kuan Yin, or Avalokiteshvara's turn to, to speak. And she explains how she arrived at her insight, her awakening, saying, entering the flow through hearing, of course she, or he, is transgender, he, she, Avalokiteshvara, is the one that listens a metaphor for this deeper prajna heart, so one that's listening. Kuan Yin explains how she arrived by this insight by first entering the flow through hearing and forgetting about objective states. The objective states, seeing the world as an object to us. This is part of our dualistic consciousness. We're always, when we're in that dualistic consciousness, we always see the world as an object, and therefore as soon as the world is an object to us, it evokes our reactivity. We move towards it or we recoil against it. It's very primary moves. We want, we hold, we fear, we grasp, because the, the world is outside of us, and it's a very vulnerable place to be when the world is outside of us somehow. We're always in a state of some level of anxiety. Whereas this awakening of Kuan Yin is moving into this more non-dual place. There is no inside or outside. In the suchness of being, there just is. Everything just is. She goes on to say, suddenly... She goes through the process of the meditation on listening, and this is suddenly I transcended both the mundane and transcendental worlds. All those distinctions dissolved, and throughout the ten directions, a perfect brightness prevailed. It's the perfect wakefulness of the Heart Sutra that's pointing to the perfect, timeless, original brightness prevailed. I attained two supreme states. First, I was united with the fundamental, wonderfully enlightened mind of all the Buddhas. Right there, synthesize one substance that awakened prajna mind is already the mind of the Buddhas. And I gained a great, I gained a great strength of compassion equal to that of the Buddhas. And second, the second aspect of the awakening, 
I was united with all living beings and I gained kind regard for all living beings. It was complete, on some level you could say complete intimacy with all beings. No ultimate distinctions. All beings are part of this one awakened heart. So Avalokiteshvara, Kuan Yin, is the one that has this Parajna Paramita that's dwelling, coursing, has refuge, knows this fundamental suchness, dwelling, resting there, but also has this regard, this empathy, this compassion, is the Bodhisattva of great compassion. Bodhisattva that relies the compassionate activity, the compassionate response that is moving out from that Parajnaparamita. Bodhisattva relies on the depth of this inner refuge. That from that, from that Parajna heart, the right response will emerge. And in that process, as is said in the, in the Heart Sutra, Abhidakiteshvara is encouraging Sariputra, encouraging the disciple, encouraging us to wake up. It's a sutta that's saying, it's not even saying wake up because you are awake. We are awake, aren't we? We're sitting here, we're awake. It's just have faith in your wakefulness. It's a sutta of faith, actually. It's saying have faith, trust. Don't trust all the dream thinking it goes on to say, leaving dream thinking far behind. You can be interested in the dream thinking. It's very interesting, isn't it? <laughs> keeps us occupied, certainly keeps us busy. But don't totally trust it. Trust the unfathomable, unfathomable, mysterious presence of being. This is where we trust. This is where is the deepest connection to the primordial intelligence of wisdom of the universe this is what we trust leaving dream thinking far behind the bodhisattva lives without walls of the mind lives without fear moves beyond fear because the bodhisattva knows their fundamental oneness with all things nothing to fear So it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's about waking up, but it's also about waking up beyond our self-obsession, our self-narcissism, our absorption in our own suffering so much. That's our starting point, isn't it? When we practice, we start with our suffering. It's very real to us, and, and boy, we really can suffer. And sometimes on this path, as we awaken, we actually plunge even more deeply into our suffering because we're not so defended, we're not so distracted, we're not so in denial. So it's a profound journey through suffering, but at a certain point, we have to also wake up out of our self-obsession, our enclosed bubble. Yeah. And if we don't wake up, life will crash in and wake us up. And we'll say there's a bigger picture here. There's a bigger dimension here. So the Bodhisattva isn't, is moving beyond fear and rather than fearing suffering, actually it moves towards it. Moves towards it because the Bodhisattva understands in suffering there is potential. There is something to learn. There's something to 
to develop. There's something that can be transformed. This is a great teaching from the teacher of Nagarjuna, Sahara, says, actually, suffering is bliss. <laughs> it's not. Yeah, it's, actually, it's, really not. it's really not. It's a total drag. But if we can work with it, it will take us. It will. It will transform us. And that, that can be a blissful journey. We're waking up, you know, we're waking up. This is what's happening. We're waking up, but we're waking up out of our dream, but we're waking into a, a, a reality of collective, not just our suffering, but collective suffering. Blindingly so. We're waking up into a nightmare, actually, together. You know, it's a little bit harder just to sit in our, on our zafus and pretend that the world is not burning. I mean, there was a time when it was a little bit easier to sit in one's forest kuti away from the world and just hope that it would all go on in its own sweet, merry way and leave you alone. <laughs> this isn't that time anymore. We're not in those times. We're in a time where we're, we're called to something because the world is burning. Things are moving more and more out of control, which is which is demonstrated, say, just through the weather patterns, which I know here in England. We experienced so many floods, so many strange weather patterns. In America, just where I was, great droughts. In Africa, where we are, definitely seeing the weather patterns changing. Hurricanes and tsunamis and earthquakes and volcanoes. We're seeing the Arctic melt, great speed. We're seeing the Amazon being decimated at great speed. These are the lungs of the planet. We're seeing the oceans that are dying at great speed, acidic, being, you know, all the fish stop likely to be gone in a few years. We're seeing the decrease of sustainable ecosystems, and the Holocaust visited upon the animal kingdom in all manner of ways, through our factory farming and through just here, in, in, uh, not here, but in South Africa, just tracking, been tracking what's happening as, as China, Vietnam have come into Africa, the borders have gone down, just seeing what's happening to the wildlife there. Uh, nearly 500 rhinos killed this year, 500 last year predicting an extinction if it doesn't stop, completely out of control. That's just one species. We're seeing a holocaust of species being lost. We're seeing a widening gap between rich and poor, more uh, um, unstable societies, people rioting here in Europe. Increased religious fanaticism on all fronts. More soulless consumerism. Just eating up our resources without any thought. More control of the political systems of the world through the corporate so-called personhood. Psychopathic personhood. (laughs) With its drive to death at all costs for profit. We're seeing every living thing patent and owned. 
with our, you know, the seeds down to genetic coding. And this is all the, this is the mind that sees the world as an object. This is the mind that doesn't know its intimacy with all things. This is the unawakened mind gone rampant. And this is what we're waking into. And we can't avoid it. it. It affects us, we affect it. We're woven into this as well. We contribute as well to some degree. But we can also contribute through our wakefulness. We can also transform and help to support a transformation and a collective awakening. Because this is the only choice we have now, really. We have this moment. And it is really only a moment in our short span of history on the planet to really wake up and respond from this deeper wisdom, this deeper knowledge that understands the complete and utter interconnectedness of all things. This is the knowledge of wakefulness. It's not some esoteric special knowledge. It's the knowledge we know. We've always known it. This is why it's called our fundamental nature. We've always felt that. We've always been sensitive to that. Just got lost somewhere. We lost connection. We lost the sacred. We lost our feeling for the world, for the animals. So Avalokiteshvara is an interesting archetype. There's a beautiful story of Avalokiteshvara from the Tibetan school where Avalokiteshvara decides this great bodhisattva is going to go down, hang out in Tibet and transform Tibet to Buddhism, to the Dharma. Maybe not to Buddhism, but the Dharma. And after a lifetime or so, decides, realizes this is a, quite a challenge. Realizes it's actually quite hard work. You know, people aren't that easy to transform. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of crazy stuff going on. And so, after a few lifetimes, starts to get a little depressed. And he said, no, I must keep going, must keep going, comes back again, comes back again. And then after a while, decides just to hang out in the cave for a while and recover for a lifetime. Breathing in, breathing out, mindfulness. <laughs> like us on our retreat. Just pull out the plug for a while, and then it goes back and has another go, but it's really way too difficult. And then it's said at a certain point, Avalokiteshvara, in an absolute moment of utter despair, screams, and his, his her head shatters into thousands of pieces across the landscape. And then Avalokiteshvara's guru, Amitabha Buddha. Amitabha Buddha represents limitless life, limitless light, fundamental nature. Looks down at Avalokiteshvara and says, what's your problem? You know, and Avalokiteshvara says, it's too hard. <laughs> it's too difficult. And uh, Amitabha Buddha said, well, you shouldn't have been so ambitious, made such an ambitious vow, should you? It's a little bit ambitious try and convert a whole country. <laughs> so go, never mind, it can help you out. So Amitabha Buddha comes down and gets Avalokiteshvara and all the little pieces of, of her being, his being, and starts to put Avalokiteshvara back together again and then gives her a thousand hands and eyes and eleven heads. So she, she, she's transformed into this more powerful being that's able to have all these other different skills within which to respond to suffering, 
skills as we've been chanting the mantra this morning, a, a whisk to wipe away obstructions, a lasso to tie up demons, an axe to cut through obstructions, an arrow to pierce the heart with truth, a vase of sweet dew to pour to cool down living beings, a book to transmit knowledge, all the different hands and eyes of Kuan Yin has he all these skillful responses to meet the world. This is the Bodhisattva. This is what happens for us. When our heart shatters, when we can't stand it anymore, when we get decimated, you know, it looks, can look hopeless. It can look like we've completely lost. And yet in that moment, what we don't really perhaps trust what can happen is that there's this deeper, the deeper wisdom is always operating and if we can really listen to that it will help us, this amitabha, this fundamental purity of heart, wakefulness of heart, which is always our truest inheritance, will come to reshape us. Learn a few more skills and carry on until the next shattering. (laughs) You know, that's how it goes. So this, this Bodhisattva heart is a heroic heart. It's a heroic heart, but a heart that's willing to be here, which means here in a nakedness, not here with all our strategies. I mean, we need strategies to negotiate the world. I'm, I'm all for strategies, but more deeply, knowing how to put down our strategies so we meet ourselves our body, our mind, our heart, our world, our situation, where we don't know what to do, we don't know how to respond, but we know how to meet the moment, (coughs) to be present, to be with the mystery of the moment, to be with the vulnerability of that, the nakedness of that. This is the heroic heart, not the heart that's got, you know, is going (laughs) to, has its battle gear on but has the strength to be able to withstand uncertainty and change and intensity and the breakdown, perhaps, of the systems that we've been so reliant on and dependent on for our comforts. And has also not only the hero and the warrior in the heart, but also the lover, which can love and have compassion. So however decimated we get, we don't, aren't tempted, which is so tempted to go into bitterness, and resentment, and close down. But to just keep with that fundamental compassion, like, for example, Mr. Mandela. 27 years in prison, wrongfully incarcerated, and yet was able to come out of that experience with a consciousness of compassion. Consciousness that for a while... It's kind of falling apart a bit now. <laughs> but for a while, we don't know where it will go now, but for a while, at a critical moment in the history of a country, could hold a whole country. As one person could transform that bitterness into that effect. This is an example for us. We can think, oh, who am I? I'm just a nobody. Well, if we think of ourselves from the place of Papancha, The proliferating mind, yes, it doesn't always look that hopeful. (laughs) 
But if we tune into this deeper wisdom heart, that same place that Mandala tuned into, then we meet the saints, we meet the Buddha, we meet Avalokiteshvara. We meet the strength that we may need to carry on. We meet the wisdom that we can draw on and the compassion to respond. And then when we find ourselves failing and falling apart and cracking up, we can trust a new dawn will rise and we will rise with it to meet whatever needs to be met. This is a a way of finishing my talk tonight, which I'd like to dedicate to all all of you, all of us, and all beings at this time of this, what feels like quite a critical time in our evolutionary journey. That we may call on this deeper wisdom, that it may be present for us. This is a beautiful poem by Viroka. It's called The Man Watching. I can tell by the way the trees beat after so many dull days on my worried window panes that a storm is coming and I can hear the far-off fields say things. I can't bear without a friend. I can't love without a sister. The storm The shifter of shapes drives on across the woods and across time and the world looks as if it has no age. The landscape, like a line in the psalm book, is seriousness and weight and eternity. What we choose to fight is so tiny. What fights with us is so great. If only we would let ourselves be dominated as things do by some immense storm. We would become strong too and not need names. When we win, it's with small things and the triumph itself makes us small. What is extraordinary and eternal does not want to be bent by us. I mean the angel who appeared to the wrestlers of the Old Testament When the wrestler's sinews grew long like metal strings, he felt them under his fingers like chords of deep music. Whoever was beaten by this angel went away proud and strengthened and great from that harsh hand that needed him as if to change his shape. Winning does not tempt that man. This is how he grows, by being defeated decisively by constantly greater beings. May we, in our journeys, whether we are defeated, may we take faith, And may we trust this humble, present, wakeful heart to guide us, to be with us, and to protect us for our lives and for the welfare of other beings. May I dedicate this talk, may we dedicate our practice for the welfare not only of ourselves, 
here in this Dharma room, but also in this one heart, remembering all beings at this moment, remembering this great earth under such stress and travail, remembering all the great beings that have been before and their blessings that are present with us. May they bring those blessings to bear out of mercy, out of compassion. And in particular, remembering the animal kingdom. May they be protected. May all beings be protected. May they be free from suffering. Sounding Avalokiteshvara's great mantra, Om Mani Padme Hum, allowing this intention of the Bodhisattva, awakening for the welfare of others to resonate out from our heart, touching into the world around us. As we do so, privately dedicating our practice to those that we love and cherish. (laughs) 